Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to uh, this talk tonight. Um, uh, let me say before I get into the substance of this that I'm delighted and honored to be here. Uh, every time I've given a talk for the Thomistic Institute, it's been an absolute treat. I love going around the country, finding different universities and seeing what the Catholic and Catholic-adjacent communities are like there. Um, uh, I have to apologize to begin with. I had intended to write some kind of opening joke about the uh, Texas-Alabama football game, but I have been unable to figure out whether the people in this room would have rooted for the University of Alabama last week. So I don't know in what direction to make the joke, so I'm, I'm just scrapping it. Uh, uh, but it is a fact worth noting that a mere week and a half ago, uh, the University of Texas Longhorns defeated the mighty Alabama Crimson Tide in the most important football game they've had since I've been at the university. Obviously, that's not what I'm here to talk about. My name is Eric Dempsey. I teach, as I said, at the University of Texas at Austin. And I am here tonight to speak about the topic. Our, and I've changed the topic slightly from what was advertised uh, uh, the talk is now entitled Our Lukewarm Age, Relativism and God in the Modern World. So not a total violation of my promise, I think. Uh, and the topic will be largely the same, but I think this is more descriptive. Um, now, I said I'm going to speak about the issue of God in modernity, and I will. But I want to begin by talking about modernity in general, just speaking about what the term means more fully. That word modern comes from a Latin root, comes from the word modo. It's an adverb from the word for measure, which uh, idiomatically means just now, right? What happened just now. So to speak about what is modern means to speak about the new and current thing what's going on in our world, what's changed recently. Um, of course, the ideas of novelty and change are not themselves new. But there is something new about the way we now view newness, I would say. Everyone's always known that things change. Ordinarily, though, in human history, that kind of change has taken the form of one society, one state, one community, one people rising, and another one falling. The Romans replaced the Greeks, right? It's a political event above all. Um, when we use the term modern to describe today's world, I think what we have in mind above all is a certain shift in our way of life and in our ideas about ourselves, right? One great sign of that is the fact that the meaning of modernity, the question of what it means to be modern, 
um, has become a great topic of discussion among philosophers, among theologians, and among various kinds of social critics. They all talk constantly about what it means to be a modern human being. Modern human being, I'm sorry. Even in ordinary life, talking to people with no particular academic training or interest, one hears all the time people who speak about what it means to live at this point in history and who speak about being a, you hear this all the time when people say, we're living in the 21st century, I can't believe you would say that kind of thing, right? Um, there's a sense that modernity brings with it some kind of new way of thinking. But, so we know we are shaped by different ideas and a different culture that our ancestors were shaped by, but it's hard for us to say precisely what that so my first goal in my talk tonight is going to be to take that vague intimation and try to make it articulate, at least to begin to make it articulate by explaining, by saying something about its character and its roots. Now, the topic as I've posed it is of course massive and there are many ways in which it could be approached. I make no claim to being comprehensive. I make no claim to treat this issue from every possible angle. I'm going to begin instead, uh, at least begin, with something actually that came from an email that Jacob Frazier sent to me uh, when he invited me to do this talk. And I haven't told him I'm going to do this, but I'm going to read a couple of lines from that email because it struck me uh, and I thought it would be a good launching point for trying to understand what our situation is, what's unique about living in our world. Um, so, Jacob, I'm reading just a touch. You have to deal with this. Um, uh, I asked him what they had spoken about, what the TI here had spoken about when it spoke about modernity. And he said that they'd frequently spoken about, quote, certain moral issues that plague the modern day in comparison to the ancient past. And, quote, the frequent issue of lukewarm Catholicism or Christianity that leads to a, to a lack of strong moral foundations and the dangerous result of that lukewarmness. Um, now, I think in playing that fact out, uh, you've tapped into something important in our present situation. And it's on that lukewarmness that you pointed to uh, that I mean to speak, right? It's about that that I mean to speak. Um, uh, I think you're right about that, by the way, that that's something that we encounter very often uh, and not only in non-Catholic circles, non-Christian circles, but precisely in Catholic and Christian circles. Now, anyone who is a reader of the Bible would come to this fact of lukewarmness with some apprehension. I will remind you of a couple of lines from the book of Revelation, uh, in which Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, and I quote, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I am going to try in what follows to articulate first what that lukewarmness 
consistent to describe it, as it were. Second, so these are the three parts of my talk now. First, I'm going to talk, just give a diagnosis of the situation. Second, I'm going to talk about some of the philosophical roots of that problem, doing an all too brief, but I hope helpful survey of a couple of thinkers who are responsible, or I would say are an important uh, measure responsible for our current situation. And then at the end, I'm going to offer a couple of gentle suggestions for ways in which we might try to get out of this predicament, right? Um, in developing this, I'm going to draw largely on a few thinkers, some of whom are Catholic, some of whom are not, some of whom are emphatically not, uh, who've studied the phenomena of the modern world and have tapped into something like this lukewarmness. Uh, and it seems to me that that's important be precisely because our intellectual milieu is of such importance for seeing the kinds of human beings that are going to be trained and educated in this modern world. So part one, the nature of this lukewarmness, or to use the title I have in my script, relativism and the crisis of our time. And as my title indicated, my main theme in addressing the problem of the modern age will be relativism. So to my mind, the best statement of the problem of modernity comes from something said by Cardinal, the man who at the time was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, uh, later became Pope Benedict, in the famous last homily he gave before becoming Pope. You might know this, but I'll read out a short passage anyway. This is just quoting. Today, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism, whereas relativism, that is, letting oneself be tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's ego and desires. So, again, per Ratzinger, the peculiar fate of modernity is to become subject to a dictatorship of relativism, right? Um, to be clear, in saying that, he's not just saying that the modern world lacks the material for human virtue or that it's more corrupt than the world of the past or that there's less grace in it. But this fact of relativism and intellectual doctrine that has personal and social consequences is peculiar to the modern situation and it has very baleful consequences. Now, what is meant by relativism, right? This is a technical, somewhat technical, philosophic term that may not be familiar to everybody. The term itself gives some indication. It's at heart the claim that the truth about something, the truth is relative, either to circumstances or to individuals or to something that is not definitive, right? Um, but we need to make that a little more precise, right? 
because not every claim to truth is given up in modern times. Few, for instance, doubt that mathematics contains important truth that the human mind is able to grasp and know. Nor do very many people doubt the basic principles of logic. Uh, Aristotle has, you may know, a famous caricature of an ancient philosopher named Cratylus, who says he denied the principle of contradiction. Principle of contradiction is the idea which Thomas and Aristotle regarded as fundamental to human thought, that the same thing cannot be and not be in the same way at the same time. Or to put that in simpler language, two opposites meant in the same way cannot simultaneously be true, right? It's as fundamental a principle of thought as one can imagine. Aristotle paints a picture of this philosopher, Cratylus, who denied even that, and as a result had to confine himself to never speak it because he could not utter a sentence without implicitly acknowledging the truth of the principle of contradiction and who therefore confined himself to pointing his finger, right? Um, never even speaking or making any sort of assertion. Now, it may be that a philosopher needs to wrestle with the question of relativism on that level, needs to think about this fundamental issue. Um, but I would make the modest claim that at least the principle of contradiction uh, still enjoys pretty wide acceptance. And whatever confidence we've lost in our ability to know the truth doesn't get to that level. In other words, principle of contradiction, the, the, the doubt about the principle of contradiction is not the root of our social ills. The issue with relativism, then, is not whether we say there's any truth at all, but what kinds of truths we believe are knowable and what role they should play in our lives. Relativism, relativism proves especially powerful when it comes to questions about the good and about how human beings should live. To put the point somewhat differently, while we still believe strongly in certain kinds of truth, I would say especially the sorts of truth that we learn in STEM classes, or as I'm going to say later, uh, as much as we believe that there are certain facts about the world, right? There are certain kinds of truth with a capital T that we do not believe exist. Questions of the human good, as my students constantly put it, are hopelessly, quote, subjective, unquote. There's nothing my students will say as often uh, as, you know, whenever I make an assertion, they'll say, well, that's just subjective, right? Um, or they'll say that a decision on some fundamental practical issue comes down to a matter of one's personal values rather than a matter of knowing the truth and seeking to live in accord with it. I'm going to come back to that values language in the second section. I therefore submit following, uh, I think following Pope Benedict, that one reason that young people today, and not just young people, but everyone today, uh, is so confused and why everything seems to be so often, every commitment seems to be so often lukewarm, is that people are affected by the idea of relativism. 
right? The problem isn't just for students or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, scholars of advanced philosophy, though it might start there. When Ratzinger talks about relativism, he understands it as something that touches the lives of people who live outside of philosophic or academic disputes. If I can put it somewhat dramatically, relativism has a more insidious character than ordinary uh, academic doctrines or philosophic teachings. Um, it has a way of affecting uh, the whole culture, both popular and highbrow, and it affects the whole educational system in such a way that every student who so much as goes through a public high school education will be uh, will, 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 will be um, touched by it and its consequences. Now, if I can try quickly to explain how that works, okay? um, what happens, in my opinion, in my observation, is that those who are disinclined to believe in any true, rationally grounded account of the human good, or to put it somewhat differently, in any objective principle of moral action, those people have little reason to take a risk on behalf of anything, right? Or to make a sacrifice on behalf of anything. They'll be content to live lukewarmly looking for little but a, um, I realized that as I'm, as I'm reading this out, I realized I was a little harsher than I meant to be, but we'll, we'll run with it and see what happens. Uh, uh, so they, they uh, live lukewarmly, um, looking for little except a comfortable life and an unordered mix of small enjoyments and satisfactions. Without a comprehensive view of and firm conviction about the truth, they end up, quote, tossed here, quoting Ratzinger now, tossed here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine. For so many of us, for so many young and older people, that does indeed seem to be their fate, right? Um, one thing, just, just a side observation, we're the only society in human history that has had the midlife crisis, right? Um, and I think that's in a way, our creation, because we do so little when people are young to teach them that they should live in accord with true principles. We give them excellent tools to benefit themselves economically, but we give them so little of a grounding in the truth that when they get to be 40, they end up relatively wealthy and wondering what in the world they've ever done, right? Um, the ancient Greeks didn't have midlife crises, and it's not just because they all died young. They didn't. A lot, plenty of them did, but but uh, uh, that's, that's not the only reason. Um, uh, anyway, so part of the effect of this relativism is that people come to doubt that there is any simply, truly knowable good, and so they live not with a view to it and its demands, um, but instead with a view to smaller comforts. Now, that preference for comfort, I think, isn't really satisfying to most human beings, right? Um, just a little enjoyment, comfortable home. That's not really something that makes human beings happy. That can lead to a revolt against what society offers us. 
But that revolt um, lacks a predetermined, reasonable direction and often takes uh, unreasonable forms. In an essay he wrote in the late 1980s, Pope Benedict, again, as Cardinal Ratzinger, diagnosing the ills of our time, pointed to as especially characteristic of it. One is the use of drugs, and the other is terrorism, right? In both cases, he sees a kind of revolt against what the modern West has to offer, but without any better or higher possibility that presents itself to replace it. Drugs are a kind of escape, as he presents it, from the world that we know, the world that we experience. Terrorism, on the other hand, comes from a kind of hatred of that. It's a moralistic, calls it a moralistic impulse of sorts, but not one that's directed toward any kind of comprehensive good, one that's directed toward destruction. Fortunately, those are pretty extreme reactions and pretty rare, although drugs are perhaps not so very rare, at least not, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I think drug use is, is much more common than, than it used to be. Um, but we do get a much more ordinary reaction to this confusion about the good. Um, and that's a feeling of dissatisfaction and disquiet, right? Uh, one notices that, again, among students, right, at least among my students, uh, some of whom have an ingrown taste or, or a cultivated taste for literature, one of their favorite authors uh, continually, I find, to be Albert Camus, right, the French existentialist philosopher, a man who spoke about boredom and despair at one's life. Not a wicked teaching that Camus offers, but it's one of continual angst and discomfort. Um, the Catholic thinker and student of modernity, Charles Taylor, who's a Canadian uh, student of philosophy, um, in his book on, in one of his books, I should say, on the modern world, entitled The Sources of the Self, um, uh, gives the following diagnosis of our situation, right? The kind of problems that we're set with. I'm quoting here from the book. A set of questions makes sense to us which turn around the meaning of life and which would not have been fully understandable in earlier epochs. Moderns can anxiously doubt whether life has meaning or wonder what its meaning is. However, philosophers may be inclined to attack these formulations as vague or confused, the fact remains that we all have an immediate sense of what kind of worry is being articulated in these words. So now me again. We don't find, Taylor suggests, and I think he's correct, we don't find human beings at all times and places stuck with this set of problems, right? The ancient peoples, be they Sumerian, Egyptian, Roman, Greek, Chinese, Indian, whatever, did not talk about the meaning of life as though our existence presented us with some puzzle that needed to be solved. They had sure ideas of what a good life was. Individuals might come to doubt them, yes, especially if they became convinced of some truth other than the one in which they'd been brought up. Um, and there were 
little scintillas of existentialist uh, uh, dread, um, since this is a TI event. If you've read the biblical book of Ecclesiastes, right? It's a kind of expression of someone for whom, and the precise question is whether there is a good in life, right? What gain there is for human beings under the sun. But those are very rare exceptions, right? Um, interesting exceptions, uh, but rare, right? Um, now, that sense is all but universal. Taylor puts the point, I think, elegantly. People have this hard-to-articulate feeling that life lacks meaning. Everybody seems to be able to sympathize with that feeling, right? Educated or not, philosopher or not, deep person or not, so many are touched by it. They feel angst, as it were, the characteristically modern emotion. What is it that accounts for this change? Why does this feeling come to us? Why are we the angsty ones? Why are we the ones for whom life is a problem, right? Well, to answer that, I'm going to do now in the second section of this talk, a little bit of intellectual genealogy. I'm going to talk about a couple of important German thinkers uh, neither of whom is Catholic in any way, who were important in making the... Not in any way, that's not fair. Uh, they were Catholic in some ways. But uh, uh, two, two significant German thinkers who certainly were not Catholics by belief, um, who were important in making the teaching or doctrine of relativism more prominent in our world, and through whose influence it's come to affect all of us. So now, part two. Right? I want to begin to approach the issue that I have in mind uh, with that word that I mentioned before, values, right? Um, so often today, uh, when we talk, and therefore, when we think about the way in which we want to live, we speak about trying to adhere to certain values. The term which we so often use was not in use among the ancients not in use among the original Christians, um, and it came into use largely as a consequence of the public rise of moral relativism. In this part of my talk, I'm going to identify a couple of moments in which that process, a couple of thinkers who represent moments in which that process occurred. Um, but first, right, Consider the term itself, value, right? We read ancient thinkers. The words that they use are things like virtue, the good, justice, the law, right? To speak of values just sounds different. There's nothing in Plato or Aristotle about values. There's nothing in St. Augustine or St. Thomas about values, right? Values is our word for moral principle. What does it mean? Where does it come from? Uh, well, the term was made popular by the German thinker Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Um, Nietzsche is someone who is the name that as soon as you invoke it, a kind of cloud comes into the room, right? Everyone knows that Nietzsche is one of the complicated and uh, tough-to-accept thinkers. 
he was the one who, more than anyone else, is responsible for the prominence of that word value. For him, in this sense, right, like, um, sorry, I should have added this, like, you know, a, a, um, a product that you have could be valuable, right? It would have a value, but that was very different from saying this is a moral principle, or the ultimate moral principles are values, right? Um, for him, the term was used because of the origin of what he took to be values. That is, they come from the human being who gives the thing a value. Values are valuable because human beings value them. Values are products of human esteem. The worth of the thing does not come from some quality intrinsic in it, but from our act of valuation, right? Um, that same tendency, I would say, underlies the modern use of the word subjective, right? That means that when we talk about good and bad, virtue and vice, right and wrong as subjective, okay? that means that those notions come from the subjects. That is, they come from ourselves, right? Not, you know, the, the self that we are. It comes from each self that we are, rather than the objects, the things out there in the world that aren't us, that we think about and grasp with our minds, right? Using this terminology, now, I should say many people since then have embraced the term, including my, my hero, uh, Pope Benedict, right? Uh, hero. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, many people have embraced that term um, without going through this reflection, but it seems to me that it, it, it poses certain problems because that term entered into our conversations as a result of this thought, right, that the, that the moral principles had their worth because of valuation. Using this terminology has certain presuppositions and certain consequences, um, which aren't always obvious to those of us who now use the term, right? It implies that all systems of value, right, of the highest things, are somehow arbitrary, right? Nietzsche, in explaining this idea, uh, draws it from his understanding of history. The story of the past, in large part, is the story of different sets of values. He calls them tables of value in a reference to the Ten Commandments, um, created by great individuals that compete with each other. None of those values was simply true. They became prominent through the inner strength, which he calls the will to power, of the ones who espoused them and who shaped societies on the basis of them. Nietzsche's thinking there of the world's great lawgivers, the ones who created religions and cultures. And for him, created that a human being would create a religion and that that's the right way to understand how religions came into being, that is indeed a presupposition of his thought, um, which is why I say so comfortably that he's not really Catholic. Uh, he's not Catholic. Um, what this means is that the values that we follow, the values by which we live, aren't found in nature or in God's revelation. They're creations of the human will. Right? Um, 
if one accepts this account of history, and it is the, again, the shape of my claim is that this teaching has become widely accepted even to those who don't make it explicit to themselves. Um, it puts, if someone accepts this, they can only do so by putting themselves at odds with all the teachings of the past, right? Nietzsche was fully aware of that. When Nietzsche said God is dead, he meant, yes, I mean, he had in mind the disappearance of the belief in the God of the Bible, but also the belief in all of the old standards of value, all the old standards of right and wrong, the very thought that outside of us there was some standard of how we ought to live, right? Uh, um, and in that sense, right, uh, Nietzsche recognizes himself as ushering in a new age, right? Or a new world in which we no longer seek that kind of meaning outside of ourselves, right? But a sensible person might ask, right? Is that correct, right? Um, <laughs> uh, is, has Nietzsche shown do we have good reason to agree with Nietzsche that God and all of the values of the past are dead? Obviously, as a Catholic, that's not my position, right? Um, but I will say that even among those who are not like Nietzsche, Nietzsche draws the consequence from this that human beings live in a perpetual war of systems of value, one against the other, right? And that the real sign of something, the real indication that something is worth doing is not some quality that belongs to it, but the strength and vigor with which one wills it, right? Again, Nietzsche is perhaps the most radical thinker about what it means for the world to be, the history of the world to be the history of values. Uh, but in ordinary language and in the effect it's had on us, that teaching has taken on a more muted, uh, and I would say again, somewhat insidious form. Um, as I said, I promised earlier to speak about that my theme was going to be lukewarmness, right? Nietzsche is one of the least lukewarm people who ever lived, and yet, paradoxically, his teaching somehow yields a world in which lukewarmness is very common. How does that happen, right? To try to explain that, I'm going to refer to another German thinker, uh, Max Weber, right? Weber, I think, is not as well known as Nietzsche, although he's pretty well known. Um, uh, he's often spoken of, and I think it's reasonable, as the greatest social scientist of the 20th century. He's someone who had read Nietzsche and studied Nietzsche, but he turned his attention to being an academic who studied things like politics and sovereignty and later in his life religion, right? Um, he, uh, uh, following Nietzsche, and though he didn't know him personally, I don't think it's wrong to refer to him as, uh, to Nietzsche as his teacher, he insists on a strict separation between facts, those things which can be known scientifically, and values, things which cannot be evaluated by reason or science, right? And this, the distinction that we find in Weber, right, who is, again, one of the real people who thought about what social science ought to be, that distinction that we find in Weber now affects so many of us, not only 
insofar as we, without recognizing it, assume what he says, but because it provides the framework for our educational institutions, which actively form us as what we are. Right? Um, uh, so Weber, in distinguishing between facts and values, suggests that the only thing that's worthy of our attention as students, right, as people who are trying to learn, as people who are trying to form ourselves, is the facts, right? Because education for Weber is supposed to be the cultivation of our reason, and reason can speak only about facts. It has nothing to say about whether the values of a Christian, an ancient Roman soldier, or a terrorist are better or worse one than the other, right? Reason, when it comes to question of values, simply has to give up the game, right? Um, in that way, right, as we now study, right, when we prepare ourselves to live adult lives, uh, what we study in school and what we're encouraged to, scud to study in school is not the idea of the good, it's not philosophy and metaphysics, it's not the truth about the human condition, it's rather the study of facts if we are to be academics, or more commonly, if we are not to be academics, it's study that prepares us to make use of our powers in career or in industry, right? But the study, okay, the idea that there's a, a rational account of human ends that we can understand through study is neglected in the educational system that we have today, right? Um, I would suggest that, again, while it's not the only important cause of this feeling of lukewarmness that we so often now experience, it is one important cause of it, because our convictions about the just, the good, and the noble, about virtue and vice, are things that we so often are inclined to treat as mere subjective questions, matters of opinion, and not matters about which any kind of scientific knowledge is possible, right? Um, okay. Uh, that's the end of my second section. Uh, and again, the main point of that was just to say that this notion of relativism, especially through the fact-value distinction, has come to shape our whole educational system and our whole way of thinking about ourselves, and that that's led to a kind of crisis in confidence about our own moral convictions. I don't think it's the only thing that's led to that lukewarmness or that crisis of confidence, but I think it's one very important thing. And now, let me come to my final section, right? Um, so, these are the worries uh, that we, and I should add, uh, that although neither Weber nor Nietzsche was, um, as I said before, Catholic, right? They were both very worried about the future, right? Uh, maybe the most famous passage in Nietzsche is his description of the last man, right? And he was very worried that the future, that's for him, the last man is the person of the future. And he was worried that the person of the future 
through a kind of sophisticated education would inoculate himself against the appeal of all transcendent values and end up leading a life of what he calls, quote, wretched contentment, unquote, the kind of happiness that comes from taking a perverse pride and thinking there's nothing important about you or anything else in the world, and you'll milk the world for the little bit of pleasure that you can find before you die. Max Weber, meanwhile, following Nietzsche, worried about the future as being populated by, in his famous line, uh, specialists without spirit and voluptuaries. That means pleasure seekers uh, without heart, right? So very educated people who had no soul and no substance, and both of them looked at that possibility with despair, right? So what do we do about this, right? Coming out of my last section, what, what, what can we do about this? What should a person who grows up in our world do, right? I always try to give, you know, kind of big account of the great problems in the world, but I want to start by, I want to end rather, by bringing things a little bit more back down to earth, right? And hopefully give you guys some suggestions for what to do with this, what I take to be this fact. First, and of course, uh, there is the answer provided by the church. Um, I'm not sure whether everyone here is Catholic. I don't think you're, you're certainly not expected to be. It doesn't, it's, it's not, that's not the point. Uh, but I think it's appropriate at least briefly to say something about what the core of the Catholic response to this would be. Catholics, of course, would deny, and I count myself among this number for what it's worth, uh, Catholics, of course, would deny that God is dead without denying that modernity has its own sets of problems. Uh, they hold that God is very much present in the world that we know. Moreover, Catholics would say, the natural law, the set of principles that's knowable, not through God's revelation, but through human, re but through human reason, is as true and as binding as it ever was. The community of the Catholic Church remains, right? and remains under the aegis of the Holy Spirit. It teaches truth. Those answers, in my judgment, are good and true. But they're not complete, right? I, 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 I think we're, we, we know that they're not complete, right? Um, to put the point starkly, uh, grace, in Thomas's phrase, presupposes nature, and our notion of human nature has, whether we like it or not, become reduced in the modern world. The rational account of human ends that we previously had was based on a more robust understanding of what it means to be human than we now have. And that, I would say, is a fact not primarily, when I, when I say our understanding of what it means to be human in this case, I do not mean primarily our philosophic account of the self, although that's relevant to it, right? I mean, above all, our sense of what a human life is that comes from the moral, cultural education that we all get through our whole lives, right? Um, 
since grace presupposes nature, it seems to me that even we Catholics, who, as you guys presciently said, are even Catholics today are very lukewarm, it's necessary for us to get back to a more robust understanding of what it means to be human, to get more completely back in touch with our nature. And so I would like to offer two relatively modest interrelated suggestions for how as individuals and as a community we might respond to this crisis of modernity. In both of these, I should just own, um, I am borrowing from a thinker who is not Catholic, but who is very sympathetic to Catholicism and who is wise about things in human nature. And that's C.S. Lewis, right? Um, both of these suggestions, Lewis is actually, um, in some version of the talk I had included this, uh, uh, Lewis has a wonderful and I think very similar diagnosis of the crisis of the modern human being in some of his short books like The Screwtape Letters and The Abolition of Man. And I would suggest that those books also offer some good advice for at least beginning to address the angst in which modern relativism so often leaves us, right? Um, so suggestion number one, right? Um, and I hope it's okay if I make practical <laughs> suggestions here. Uh, suggestion number one, right? Um, as we pursue, and this is a suggestion for myself too, as we pursue our educations, um, we need to cultivate the habit of reading the great books of the past with a view to the possibility that what they have to teach might be simply true. In other words, don't historicize everything as we read it, but encounter, genuinely encounter some of the ideas of the past as openly as we can. Let me read a passage from Lewis that explains some of this, right? This is taken from that delightful book, The Screw Tape Letters. Uh, if you haven't read The Screw Tape Letters, you guys read The Screw Tape Letters? All right, as you know this, Screw Tape Letters is great. Um, uh, it's a short, in fact, I brought it, but uh, uh, Screw Tape Letters is a fairly short book. Um, it's an epistolary novel. It's a sequence, uh, so it's a novel of letters, right? Um, and it's a set of letters written from one of Satan's minions, the archdemon or, or the boss demon Screw Tape to his somewhat bumbling nephew, Wormwood, uh, as he tries to corrupt a particular human being. So Screwtape is always giving Wormwood advice about the best way to corrupt his, his, uh, his, his patient, is the phrase for it, right? It's good. Um, I'll read a passage from this, right? Uh, lots of wisdom in this book, in my opinion, but this is a good line. He writes, Only the learned... Uh, read, so he's describing the current situation, only the learned read old books, and we have now so dealt with the learned that they are all of men, that they are of all men the least likely to acquire wisdom by doing so. So this is the effect, the achievement of the devils, right? They've made the learned, in a, it's a beautiful statement, they've made the learned the least likely to become wise through reading. How? Um, we have done this by inculcating the historical point of view. 
The historical point of view, put briefly, means that when a learned man is presented with any statement in an ancient author, the one question he never asks is whether it is true. He asks who influenced the ancient writer, and how far the statement is consistent with what he said in other books, and what phase in the writer's development, or in the general history of thought it illustrates, and how it affected later writers, how often it's been misunderstood, typically by the man's own colleagues. That's funny. Um, uh, and what the general course of criticism on it has been for the last 10 years, and what's the present state of the question to regard the ancient writer as a possible source of knowledge, to anticipate that what he said could possibly modify your thoughts or your behavior, this would be rejected as unutterably simple-minded, right? So Screwtape's uh, remark contains a kind of... You have, to, you have to chart it through every level to see what the point of the text is, but it contains helpful advice for us as readers. Step one in getting the, out of the trap of relativism is simply to read books from people who lived before the age of relativism and let their thoughts hit us in the simplest, most direct way they can as claims that are possibly true. And then I have a second piece of su advice, second suggestion, um, that I take to be related in a lot of ways, right? Um, and it too has to do with education. In addition to requiring an intellectual education, which I do think we need, right? Um, it seems to me that we need also a sentimental education, an education of our sentiments or of our feelings. The typical view of the relativist, typical view of the fact-value relativist, like Weber, I should say, is that our emotions and feelings are beneath reason. They're dumb in the proper sense of the word. They don't speak to us. They're merely felt. They're separate from thoughts um, and thus need to be managed by our thoughts, right? Um, which, which are, 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 there are different consequences you could draw from that. We could talk about Thomas Hobbes, but not tonight. Um, but at any rate, there's a sense that our feelings and passions are beneath reason. I would suggest that the older view is that our feelings are deeply connected to thoughts, that they're not merely irrational, and that some of those thoughts may be false but other, uh, others of them may be true and may even contain more significant truths than the ones that we find when we study tables of facts. Let me try to make that case. Right? Um, uh, when we feel, or at least explain what I mean, right? Um, when we feel something like admiration or anger or love or awe, right? Part of it is just a feeling, I would say, but it's a feeling that goes with thoughts about the object of our anger or the object of our love. You're angry at someone because they did us a wrong. Aristotle, therefore, speaks about anger. Thumos is the part of human, the human soul that's receptive, most receptive to reason and argument. When we love someone, we may believe that they are good or 
beautiful, right? Um, but we believe something about them that's connected to the fact that we love them. Our feelings are not completely arbitrary. I would suggest to you that embracing feeling, right, um, in the sense of thinking about it and taking seriously what you feel and avoiding the irony about our feelings that's so common in contemporary art and music, right, um, is an important step on an education that will help you recover a better sense of what it means to be human, right? To put that in plainer and simpler language. Um, it's not Max Weber who's able to give the best account of what love is. Uh, it's the poets and the philosophers of the past, right? Um, so I would just suggest embracing certain old-fashioned sentiments that might, from a modern point of view, seem corny, right? Um, uh, C.S. Lewis mentions the statement in Horace's Ode that it's sweet and fitting for someone to die for his fatherland, right? Calls forth a sentiment of admiration immediately, and the most naive, simple-minded sentimentalism about that thought is, I think, wiser and more clarifying than all of the science you can draw, uh, all, all of the uh, Weberian positivistic social science that you can offer about it, or to offer something simple that's uh, uh, that that. Uh, uh, that, that, that I think is usually not that far from the minds of people between 18 and 22, which I take it most of you are, uh, romantic love, right? That's something that's so natural that it still occurs. And uh, just thinking about what that means and not treating it as a simple, irrational bug, right, in your programming uh, is wise. So again, the last thing I want to say is that in addition to educating your intellect with a view to the truth, it's necessary if you want to understand what human nature really is to educate your feelings. Um, relativism has given us an education in a kind of culture uh, that distances us from our feelings, and therefore it's necessary now for us to embrace the idea of the education of the heart. That's it. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.